We're gathered here on a Sunday morning because about 2,000 years ago on a Sunday morning, there were a few women who were going to a tomb and they had with them spices that in their mind were simply going to be used to do what was proper and right in preparing a body and caring for a body that had died. And it was someone that they loved and someone that they cared about who had died. And so they were walking to the tomb very, very early on a Sunday morning because they wanted to simply take care of and treat this body of this loved one with respect. There wasn't enough time for them to do it on Friday because the person who had died on Friday had died right before sundown and they wanted to get him into a tomb as quickly as they could because it was against their custom to deal with any grave or any person who had passed away on a Saturday, which was for them the Sabbath day. So it was this quick burial into a place in a borrowed tomb in Jerusalem of somebody named Joseph of Arimathea. And so they went and they saw where he was and then they had to wait over 24 hours before they could then come and do what it is that they wanted to do for him. And when they came, they saw that there was a stone that had been rolled away. And their first inclination wasn't that something miraculous happened. Their first inclination was that something mischievous had happened. They said, oh no, somebody's come and stolen the body of this one that we love. So as they approached the tomb, They were fully expecting to find their friend, his name Jesus, buried there so that they could take care of his body. Then when they saw that the stone was rolled away, they thought something mischievous had happened. They thought someone had stolen him, someone had taken him away. And then eventually through a revelation, they're told, no, he's not here and no one's stolen him, but he is risen, he's alive. And shocked by the news, they go and tell Jesus' disciples, and they don't believe it either. And the story continues that for most people, as they first heard about the resurrection, they struggled to believe it. So really? Are you, he, he's alive? We, we saw him die. And it was a gruesome death, and it was a public death, and nobody doubted that he was dead. But it was hard, even for his closest followers, even for those who loved him the most, to believe that he had risen again. But they did come to believe it as they encountered him alive and as they were able to speak with him and interact with him. And so they began to spread the message and to tell people, well, just like Jesus wasn't very popular when he was alive such that people killed him, his followers walking around now and telling people that he's alive, that wasn't very popular and people were upset by that and people were even willing to kill them for saying that he was alive. And one particular person was incredibly angry at the church and thought this message of a risen Jesus was dangerous and he didn't want anyone to believe it. And so he was a young hotshot. He was happy to use all of his energy, all of his effort to end this movement, to put it down. And so wherever he could find a group of people gathered talking about Jesus, wherever he could find anyone singing his name or his praise, he was happy to interrupt, to destroy, and to put an end to whatever celebration was going on. And he was so effective at what he was doing and how many people he could get to join him in this attack against these early believers that they realized it's just not safe for us in Jerusalem anymore. We can't be here. We have to run. And so they ran to the closest towns they could. 
But this guy was so angry, so upset that this message would go forth, that people would believe what was in his mind, total nonsense, that he said, I'm not just happy for them to leave Jerusalem. I'm going after them. I want them to know there is no safe place where they can run, where they will be free and safe from the pressure that I want to put on them. And so he was traveling to a city called Damascus. And while he was on that path, leaving from Jerusalem to Damascus, he encountered the risen Savior. He was knocked off of his horse, fell to the ground, blinded, and he heard a voice that cried out to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And instantly, he knew that everything he was trying to oppose was in fact true. Everything that made him angry was actually beautiful and wonderful and amazing. And this person who had a reputation for being opposed to Christ and violently opposed to Christ for the rest of his life became an ambassador for Christ. And it's his conversion from well-known terrorist to passionate, peaceful church planter that was one of the most amazing stories of conversion and encounters with the risen Savior that has led so many people to believe in the truth that Jesus rose again. Because if Jesus didn't rise again, how could someone like him be so dramatically converted that he would willingly now not violently oppress anyone, but that he would actually willingly suffer so that the gospel could go forth. That's his story, and that's what we're going to read today in Philippians chapter 3. And so I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to Philippians chapter 3, where we're continuing a series. And if you've been with us as we've been going through Philippians, we're going rewind just a couple of verses for the larger context. And last week we looked at the first 11 verses of Philippians 3. But we're going to reread those 11 and then go all the way to chapter 4 in verse 1. This is on page 981. If you're using one of the Bibles, it's provided for you in a pew. Philippians chapter 3. This is that former terrorist, now church planter, formerly Saul, now Paul. He writes these words. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of Christ, of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, My joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And that will conclude our reading. So there, hopefully, you saw some of that testimony of Paul's, which I had described. He, even long after his conversion, never never wavered from acknowledging what he used to be like and what he used to believe in, and what he used to do to people because of his beliefs. Though he had repented from that, though he had found freedom in Christ, part of that freedom he had experienced in Christ enabled him to always tell the truth about what he used to be like and what he used to do. And so he says to them, if you want to compare zeal, I was zealous and I was a persecutor of the church. And he describes his conversion in a very short phrase in verse 12. What happened to him on that Damascus road at the end of verse 12? He says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, Paul is saying, I wasn't looking for him. I didn't like him. I wanted nothing to do with him. The only way I can explain to you how I'm a Christian is that He was looking for me, that he came after me, that he pursued my heart, and he made me his own. He revealed himself in such a dramatic way to me that I couldn't doubt his existence anymore. I couldn't deny that he was who he said he was, and so he made me his own. And so that's the brief description of what we read about in Acts chapter 9. 
But I wonder if you notice that actually at the beginning of this chapter and then at the end, there's kind of this bookend of warnings that Paul gives. In verse 2, he says, look out for dogs, look out for evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then at the end of the chapter, he describes a group of people in verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So in case you're wondering, in verse 2, when he says look out for dogs, he doesn't mean dogs, he means people, and he's not complimenting them, uh, such that someone would stand up and say, Paul, I don't know that that's very Christian of you to call, to call someone a dog. And I had a friend who said, don't you love when people point out to you if you're doing something, and they say, you know, that's not very Christian of you. He's like, I just want to say to them, well, how Christian of you to notice, um, which was true. But we often have this uh, assessment that we think Christian is synonymous with nice. And so Christians just always say nice things, and they never say anything that's harsh. Well, you can't get that from the New Testament. You can't get that from Jesus. He was the most loving person in the world, but his love for people made him be absolutely clear with them. And he had no problem speaking the truth, and it's the same with Paul. Paul, I mean, if you just look at the last verse that we read, which is the first verse of one, therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love And then he ends it by saying, my beloved, those whom I love, my loved, he's filled with love as he's writing this, and it's his love for them that compels him to use very, very strong language when he's talking about a specific group of people that they're dealing with who are trying to undermine what they understand about salvation. Because Paul knows this. This is the crux of the matter. When we're considering the resurrection, there's a direct connection between the resurrection of Christ in our salvation. His resurrection and our salvation go hand in hand. And these two things cannot be separated from one another. And when you undermine his salvation, you undermine his resurrection. And when you undermine the resurrection, you undermine his salvation. They go together. There's no way of separating them. So the first word that we're looking at today is salvation. How can we be saved? And Paul knows that these go together. And so when he thinks of other people who are coming and what they're doing is they're telling that, uh, people that there's a way that they can be saved by effort that they put into it. That yes, there's this stuff that Jesus did, but now here's all this stuff that you need to do. And by adding on to the work that Christ had done, they were in fact not adding anything, but they were taking away from what Christ did. And Paul knows this. If these group of people who want to come in and now tell everyone, yeah, Jesus is a good person and, and, and basically what he did is he gave you a spiritual version of five-hour energy and now you need to take that and just go work really, really hard at trying to save yourself, Paul says they missed the whole point. And I can't let anyone get away with saying that that's the gospel message because that's not the gospel message. When he rose again from the grave, he accomplished perfectly and completely everything that was needed for our salvation. And so anybody who comes alongside, no matter how well they're dressed, no matter how nice they talk, if when they speak, they take away from what Christ did in rising again, I care very deeply about that. Because it's not just a debate about some historical event. You know, like we could have a debate about which one of us remembers most capitals in the United States. And so basically what we're debating is who paid attention in fifth grade social studies. And if you end up proving to know more than I do, okay, whatever. I never wanted to go to South Dakota anyway. So (laughs) the fact that you can remember what it is doesn't matter. 
But this isn't one of those things. It's not just debating in the past whether this happened to him, but what we believe about it affects how we understand our salvation in the present. So that if you get it wrong, you're wrong on salvation, i.e., you're not saved. And so a loving person would take that seriously. And if they believe that salvation is on the line and eternity is on the line, then it is absolutely critical that we get these points right. And so there's this warning. In the beginning, look out for those who are adding, what they're doing is adding all of these requirements of what you and I would have to do in order to be saved rather than trusting completely in what Christ has done for us. And so that's the challenge. As we come to how the resurrection is connected to our salvation, how can we be saved? It's one thing to simply be open to the possibility that the resurrection happened. I mean, we all have to get there in some way in our minds and say, could that have happened? Well, if you're open to that, eventually you have to get to the point where you have to say, okay, do you believe it happened now? You're open to it, you've investigated, you read about Mary and the, and, and the women and they didn't believe it and they converted and the disciples and they didn't believe it and they were converted and now there's this terrorist who converted. I mean, does the, does the preponderance of all of that evidence lead you to say, okay, I think it happened. And maybe for you, you're someone who says, okay, I do, I believe it happened. I believe in the resurrection. Okay, you're still not saved. Because the question of salvation is do you trust in the resurrection? Do you trust in it? Not just do you think it was possible or even do you think it happened, but have you come completely to believe in it, which means to trust in it, that that's what you're clinging to for your salvation. So that if someone comes to you and says, excuse me, do you believe you're saved? Well, I do. Well, how do you know that? How can you be sure that you're saved? Well, I don't get any assurance from myself. What I have assurance in is that he really died on the cross and he really rose again, proving that all of my sins were forgiven and that's what I trust. Because the devil and the demons are open to the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead and they believe that he did it. What they don't do is trust in it. So you and I, can't just be comfortable or happy in in believing that it happened if we've never at any point in time come to a place where we've said we trust in it. That's what we depend on and that's what Paul's willing to say. He said, here's all these things I was trusting in, but now I put no confidence in the flesh. I put no confidence in all these things that I thought I had to do in this spiritual checklist of things that if I do this and I do this and I do this, then God will love me, then maybe God will save me. Paul's saying, if that's still how you think about salvation, if that's still how you think about God, you've missed the whole point of why he came. Because if you could do enough to be saved, then the one thing that makes absolutely no sense is that Jesus would die on a cross. And so not only is at issue salvation and how we can be saved, but crucifixion, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus offer himself on a cross and then why was he willing to die and so it's interesting that in Paul's language in verse 18 when he talks about these people who are teaching a different doctrine he says they're enemies of the cross of Christ he could have said almost anything there and he could have just left the cross out he could have just said they're enemies of Christ or they're enemies of the teachings of Christ or they're enemies but he's specific for a reason They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Because whenever we teach some version of salvation 
where we contribute to it and where our righteousness is a part of the way in which we get saved, what that most fundamentally undermines of all the things that Jesus did, it doesn't undermine when he fed the 5,000, it doesn't undermine when he was baptized in the Jordan by John, what it undermines was why he went to the cross. Why did he die on a cross if you and I could be saved in some other fashion? And actually, if you just look a few books back, in Galatians chapter two and verse 21, so you're in Philippians and you go past Ephesians and you get to Galatians and you get to 2.21. Here's Paul writing on a different account but making the same point. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And that's, that's why he has that attitude in Philippians. If these people who are coming in and trying to say there's a way in which we can be saved by our own efforts, by our own works, yeah, add it all together with what Jesus did. He says if that's the message, then Christ died for no purpose. And so he takes this absolutely seriously. For Paul, the reason that Christ died was because that all of our righteousness put together is, in his language, rubbish or trash, garbage. And it doesn't save. And there's, we don't need something else to help dress it up and make it look better. It still stinks. And it still needs to be sent down the street. What we need is an entirely different righteousness that's not of our own, that's pure, that's never been defiled, that no one can take away, a righteousness that comes to us from Christ because he was willing to die on the cross for our sins. But where some of these people go wrong and where it's so easy for us to go wrong again today is that someone will stand up and say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. If you tell people that their salvation has been entirely accomplished and secured by grace alone, that they're saved not because of anything they've done and not because of anything they can add, then they're just going to take that salvation and they're going to run with it. And they're just going to keep on living the way they want to live and they're going to do whatever they want to do. And so they start to add. Well, no, no, no. You have to believe that, but you also have to do this and you also have to do this. And what they're trying to do is to get people just to take God seriously in their everyday life. But that doesn't work. Because again, we can't offend God by basically mocking the greatest gift he's ever given us and then somehow honor him with the way we're doing things. We honor the gift giver by thanking him for the gift, by acknowledging that there is nothing that we could do. But when we keep in mind what it cost him to give us the gift, then no, we should never have the attitude that now we can run with it and just do whatever we want. When we really think about the cost that it was that Jesus was willing to die the type of death that he died, we can't run from that and say, oh, thanks. Now I get to do whatever I want to do. As you know, sometimes the prayers describe, Lord, please make me pure, but it's Friday, so if you could wait till Monday, that would be really helpful. That's often how sometimes we approach salvation. Please save me, but let me do the things I want to do. When you really look at why Jesus died and what he was willing to go to for you and me, 
It was the hymn writer who put it best. He said, see from his head and his hands and his feet, sorrow and love flowed, mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then he says, were the whole realm of nature mine? If I had everything in all of creation with which to thank God, that were an offering far too small. Because love so amazing, love so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. And so the person who really gets the gospel, who sees and understands what Jesus was willing to do for you and for me, that person is not going to run and do whatever they want to do. They're going to do what Paul does and what he exhibits, and they're going to do all that God asks them to do. And they'll be excited to do it. And so that's Paul's attitude. Paul who believes he's saved by grace. Paul who believes that his righteousness contributes nothing is the most passionate person to live out a life of holiness for God. And he says that he wants to know him. He wants to know the power of his resurrection, even if that means sharing in his sufferings. He wants to become like Jesus in his death, that by any means possible he could attain the resurrection. And then verse 12, he's admitting about himself I haven't already obtained this. I'm not already perfect, but I'm pressing on towards the mark of the call in Christ Jesus. And the cross is the only thing that can do this. It's the only thing that can humble us and make us realize that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags and at the same time motivate us to be the best that we could possibly be for God because we love him so much for loving us so much. And so... We want to do what's right and we want to honor him and we want to live in ways that glorify his name. And Paul says uh, he's pressing on towards the goal of the prize and he wants everyone in verse 15 who's mature to think this way. So he's not giving to this whole congregation some license to sin. He's motivating them in the right way to honor God and in their maturity to pursue God with all of their heart but not because somehow or another, by what they do, they'll earn God's favor, but precisely because they've already received it unconditionally. He wants them to feel the freedom to run in it, the freedom to enjoy it. The way I often think about it is, uh, as it relates to a gift, I've received many gifts throughout my life. Most of my life can be written by the story of what others have done for me. My whole life can, can pretty much be written that way. The one that I received was a scholarship for school. And the way I understood that gift was I, I, I did nothing to earn it. Somebody else was willing to say, here you go, here's the gift, it's yours. Well, the assumption then, if I really was glad to receive it, would be what? That I'd say, oh great, now I don't have to go to school anymore. I don't have to learn anything. No, that doesn't make sense. If that was a gift you pursued and it was a gift you received, then that gift enables you to do something. And it wasn't then by anything that I did that I maintained it. It was, here it is, now go do what this gift enables you to do. And enjoy it. But you enjoy it by using it. You enjoy it by taking full advantage of all the benefits and privileges that it gives to you. And so the grace of God is something that comes to us that we could never earn, we could never pay back. But it's a gift that enables us to live life in a totally different way. It changed Paul from being a terrorist to a church planner. 
It changed the women at the tomb from being doubters to confident proclaimers of the message. It changed Peter, who denied Christ three times, wanting no association with Jesus because he was afraid he was going to die too, to being this bold and strong preacher who was willing to face persecution for his faith. It's a gift that enables us to do things when we keep in mind how it is that we're saved and why it is that Jesus died. And then there's something else at stake in this. It's the issue of restoration. When we come to the resurrection of Jesus and we think about what it means for us, it tells us how we can be saved. It explains to us why Jesus died. But then it also addresses the question of what happens to you and to me after we die. And that's what Paul talks about at the end of this chapter. When he looks at these people who have a very different message and a very different gospel, he says in verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So if the resurrection is really true and Jesus now has this glorious, eternal body, he's saying to you and to me, we can have this hope too. That not only can we experience radical life change now, but we can look forward and await that Savior who's resurrected to come back again and to transform us in such a way that we will be resurrected like him, that we will be given a glorious body that will never decay. So here again, as Paul understands this, eternity is on the line. And when he looks at the people who don't believe in this message, who are undermining the message of the resurrection, who are doubting why Jesus really had to die for our sins, in verse 19 he says, their end is destruction. And he's looking out in his congregation, he's saying, but your end doesn't have to be destruction. Yours doesn't have to be. Because he did secure and accomplish everything that was needed for you and for me. If we reject that, it's not that God doesn't love us. It's that we've rejected the one means by which he has provided salvation to us. So that if you were sick with a disease and you came to the doctor and he said, this is it, take this and you'll be cured. And you said, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this. It's not the doctor who's unloving to you. He's saying, this is what it is. This is what you need. This is the medicine that you can take to be cured. And if you don't take it, this disease will simply continue to worsen. And you'll continue to decline. And so basically, as Paul looks out on all of these teachers who are undermining the message of the resurrection and the meaning behind the crucifixion. He's looking at them and he's saying, they're selling you drugs that don't work. They're keeping you from the one thing that can save you. Don't listen to them. Don't follow after them. Because they're gonna die with you. And they're gonna be destroyed with you if you follow them. 
Follow Christ. Follow the one who rose from the dead. Follow the one who defeated the grave. Follow the one who has a glorious body and can offer you and me a glorious body too. There's all kinds of things coming out in in the media and in film. Now they're going to tell you things about heaven and what it's like. Look, Jesus was the first person who said, I came from heaven to earth. I know what it's like. And I've provided a way from you. I'm not just describing it to you. I'm actually going to make it possible for you to go there and to be with me forever. So hang with me. Stay with me. Don't buy into any other lie or any other story about what might happen or what might be. I am the one who is the authority on the matter. And I've made a way for you and for me. And so that's the challenge I think Paul leaves all of us with and that I want to leave us with this morning is that when we think about it, of the great news that Jesus rose again, it's not just a question of whether we believe it. It's a question of whether or not we've ever come to trust in it. And that we could then say like Paul, Jesus Christ has laid hold of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are thankful and we are rejoicing at the news of your victory over the grave. But we long as we believe that you long in your heart to see every one of us to not only hear about it, but to embrace it and to be changed and to be transformed by it. And so we ask that as this last song is played, as we have an opportunity to reflect on the truth behind its words, that your spirit would do what only it can do to minister to our hearts, that someone else like Paul would just be arrested today and find freedom that comes in embracing you, in choosing you, and in living life for you. We thank you that you were willing to save us, willing enough that you died for us, and able enough to rise again so that we could have the hope and the confidence and the joy that is found in you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen.